to the Holistic Nutritionist podcast. My name's Natalie Douglas and we're doing a bit of a Q&A today because I posted a little question box over on Instagram um, last week and there were a whole bunch of really, really good questions that came through. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you that tomorrow, which is Wednesday the 20th of January 2021, in case you're listening to this way in the future, um, we are running a free gut healing masterclass. So it is called Stop Bloating and Start Digesting with Ease, the transformative three-step process for a happy, healthy gut, which I can imagine at the beginning of the year and really any time sounds pretty damn fabulous, right? There's nothing like having good digestion, I think. So if you do want to join us for a free chat on all things gut health, then please make sure you jump on over to the link in my Instagram bio or straight to my website, nataliekdouglas.com and just navigate yourself to the gut rescue tab up the top and you'll be able to register for that. If you can't make it live, so fine. You um, can still listen to the replay for a limited amount of time, but you do need to make sure that you've registered before the masterclass goes live. Otherwise, the replay um, won't be sent out to you. All right, so questions. Shall we jump in? So as I said, there were quite a few that came through. So what I've done is actually split it into two and I will record a part two to this gut health Q&A to make sure that all the questions that were sent through were asked. There were some that were, as always, when when there are questions, there were some that were super similar. So I haven't included every single one if someone has already asked it. So hopefully you all have your questions answered. If not, you know where to find me and please feel free to send through some more. So the first question is, why does your cycle affect bowel motions? So we've all had period poops, right? Or perhaps you felt really constipated leading up to your period. So they're probably the two most common situations that happen. So let's start with the constipation side of things. So what can happen in the second half of your cycle, which is called the luteal phase, and that's after ovulation, so after an egg has been released, um, and then we go into our luteal phase, there's a hormone that starts to get secreted, if you've ovulated, called progesterone. And progesterone has the effect on the body of slowing things down, which includes your transit time, so the time it takes for you to basically have a bowel motion. And so sometimes you can experience constipation in the lead up to your cycle. To a degree, you can help mitigate this by taking something like magnesium, increasing your fiber, making sure you're having a lot of water. But if you do have you know, more going on digestively, then those things aren't necessarily going to be enough. And I'd advise working with a practitioner to sort out all of the gut stuff that's going on for you. The other thing that can happen is, as many of you have probably experienced period poops, which um, if you're in the very small minority that have no idea what I'm talking about, then lucky you or unlucky you, depending on how you feel about having lots of bowel motions. Um, what happens is that when you are starting to shed your uterine lining, which is what your period basically is, There's a lot of what we call inflammatory cytokines or prostaglandins, which are basically like things that are helping to have that 
lining shed and they are released in your uterus. However, because your uterus and your bowel are kind of like neighbors to an extent, you know, the prostaglandins can have that effect of stimulating your bowel to also be um, not shedding. You're not shedding your bowel, but kind of releasing and causing you to have more loose stools. That's the simple way to explain and all you probably need to know to understand what's happening. And it's pretty normal. Like there's nothing to be worried about if you get the period poops that does happen and it is usually just related to to that. So I hope that helps clear that question up. Um The second question, which is still in the category or the arena of, you know, bloat of our cycle and our bowel and our gut is why do we bloat around our cycle? And I think this is a really good question. And I also think that it's quite a difficult one to answer for two reasons. One is that We want to differentiate between bloating and fluid retention because in my experience, a lot of people who say they are bloated are actually experiencing fluid retention. So the way that I explain it to my clients is that bloating feels like someone has blown up a balloon inside your belly and if you wanted to suck your tummy in you would find it difficult and or it would feel really uncomfortable or even hurt. Whereas um, fluid retention feels more like someone has strapped water bags to the outside of your body and you feel like a bit of an oompa loompa or that feeling of like, um, quote unquote, feeling like a whale. Um, I know that some of you will understand what I'm saying with that. And that is more what we're talking about when we say fluid retention. You feel like heavy and you're carrying something extra. And yes, you absolutely can have both, but they're the two that I differentiate between. I would say not everyone, but most people experience fluid retention in relation to their cycle, but for sure there are some people who experience bloating as well. So I'll go through a couple of different aspects of your cycle and your hormones that can contribute to these feelings. So the first is that estrogen, which is one of your um, sex hormones that gets secreted um, you know, at different points in your cycle at different levels, it can cause you to hold on to more salt, which causes you to hold on to more water, which can make you feel like you're holding more fluid because you are. And that's often why if you're, if you're someone who um, is yet to break up with the scales in terms of the, the um weighing yourself scales, not kitchen scales, too many scales out here, Um, then you may notice that your weight goes up despite not having changed anything. So that's just one thing I wanted to share there. So estrogen, just so you know, it peaks around ovulation and that's why sometimes you can feel a bit like or like fluidy around ovulation. And then there's also like a smaller little secondary, I wouldn't call it a peak because it's not really, um, just before your period. Now, this will be exaggerated if you have estrogen dominance, which is basically more estrogen relative to progesterone, which is your other sex hormone that we talked about um, in the previous question that rises after ovulation. So that can be one factor. Another factor is that you may feel 
more bloated if in the second half of your cycle leading up to your period if you're experiencing constipation that we talked about before because if you've got more stool backed up in there um, chances are you're going to be feeling a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit bloated. There is another situation that can happen where if you've got food intolerances particularly in relation to something called histamine. So histamine's been found in like dark chocolate, um, avocado, citrus, anything cured, um, wine, all of those delicious things. <laughs> then um, when estrogen is high in your cycle, so around ovulation and a tiny bit just before your, you get your period, then your reaction to histamines can be exaggerated. And when there's a reaction to histamines, there's usually a little bit of a gut component to it, which can be experienced as bloating for some people. And sometimes there is also a bit of inflammation that goes on, which can be felt as fluid retention. That's not true for everyone, but it is something I thought was worth mentioning. Um, what other situations? So if you're not, if you're someone who suffers from a little bit of insomnia leading up to your period, um, which can sometimes happen if your progesterone drops off too quickly or it's not high enough, then um, often lack of sleep leads to increases in cortisol, which is your stress hormone. And cortisol also has a really close relationship with um, salt retention and water retention. So it can make you feel a little bit more fluidy again, not so much bloated, but more so fluidy. Um, what else? I reckon those would be the main ones, to be honest, when it comes to bloating that I see around your cycle and fluid retention. So I might leave it there because otherwise, um, I will never get through the rest of the questions. Okay. Next question is, what should I eat and avoid having SIBO? So this really depends. So for those of you listening, being like, sir, what? SIBO stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And it's when bacteria that should be in your large intestine overgrow in your small intestine where they shouldn't be. And it can cause symptoms such as bloating, um, constipation, loose stools, could cause gas, abdominal pain, brain fog, um, loads of different things that it can cause depending on the severity, what else is going on, and also the type of SIBO that you have. So type of SIBO that you have is actually really important. So in terms of um, what should you eat and avoid having if you have SIBO. So that's where I hesitate to give any really specific advice, but I can give you some educational advice in terms of a bit of an umbrella or an overview. So if someone has methane-dominant SIBO or hydrogen-dominant SIBO, which are the types of two of the gases that can be um, high in SIBO when you run a breath test for this, then generally speaking, something like a SIBO diet or a low FODMAP diet can work quite well. But none of these things work in isolation. Like you can't just get rid of SIBO through diet in my experience. You usually need to be doing some other component. So antimicrobials, prebiotics, certain probiotics, nutritionals, um, activating your vagus nerve. And this is where a practitioner would work with you to help make sure that that's really targeted to you. Now, the other kind of difference to this is if you had something called a hydrogen sulfur dominant SIBO, which is when the gas that is 
you know, in excess is sulfur and not hydrogen or methane, then that's where you wouldn't necessarily do a strict low FODMAP diet. You'd actually be more looking at doing something that was low in sulfur. So you'd be reducing high sulfur foods. So high sulfur foods or some examples of high sulfur foods are cruciferous, most cruciferous vegetables um, like onions and garlic um, and also red meat, um, eggs, chocolate, coffee. I know all the good things again. Um, and it's not, none of these things are forever. And I think that's something really important and that I'm really passionate about because it's, these are therapeutic interventions. So they're designed to be things that are used for a period of time while we treat the underlying root causes and then food should be reintroduced. Otherwise you just end up starving your microbiome and not kind of re revamping the terrain which is what we need to do so basically making your um you know forest of bacteria healthy again okay next question is i've healed ibs after a very long journey and now i feel like it's back can this happen oh i so feel for you it really it's horrible when that does happen because i know personally and professionally how much it can take to get on top of it and the answer is that yes, IBS or irritable bowel syndrome, I guess, can come back often if it's driven by SIBO, which is quite common. So around 60 to 80%, depending on the research you look at, of IBS, of irritable bowel syndrome, is driven by SIBO. And SIBO is something that can recur, um, but there are things that you can do to help prevent it from recurring. So part of that is making sure that you've real once you've gone through healing IBS, you've really made sure that you have made an effort to regrow the beneficial bacteria and also to look after the health of your vagus nerve. So your vagus nerve is a nerve that runs from your brain into your gut and it has a huge role in promoting motility, so the movement of food through your digestive system. You can activate your vagus nerve for free and things that you can do um, that will activate it are things like humming, um, singing at different pitches, gargling aggressively, um, some acupuncture can activate the vagus nerve um, and also cold showers can also activate it. And there are also breath work practices you can do, but you can have a look at those um, in your own time. So I would definitely get on top of it of top of it as soon as possible with the help of a practitioner because usually the sooner you jump on you know, jump back on the bandwagon of looking at what might be going wrong, the quicker it is to um, to heal. Okay, next question is, can you just use diet to get rid of candida? In my experience, no. Um, that's not to say that that it has never happened, but usually by the time someone has detectable and noticeable candida overgrowth, there needs to be more than just a reduction in like sugar or yeast containing foods in order to get on top of it again. That doesn't mean to say that you have to do it really aggressively. However, I would say that usually um, 
you know, at a bare minimum, some targeted prebiotics and probiotics would be of benefit. And then sometimes some gentle or sometimes some more aggressive antimicrobials, depending on what exactly is going on, um, is necessary as well. So yes, unfortunately, not in my experience. Um, usually it does need a little bit of supplementation alongside it as well. Um, next one, is it normal for food intolerances to affect me more during my period? Oh, that one slipped through. So refer back to the conversation before. So some, yes. Um, and I think histamine is one of them. However, I also do think that when we are, particularly when we're in the lead up to our period and we're more sensitive, I also, in my experience clinically, I do feel like people notice some of their symptoms more as well. Okay, do colonics help with bloating and IBS? Yes, bloating, yes, sometimes, but not as a fix-all, like it's kind of like a band-aid. So if the context in which I've seen them help with bloating is if you're constipated in particular, and you can be constipated and still have loose squirty stools, just so you know. So don't confuse constipation with having to be these dry pebbly things. Constipation can be like when you're not having regular, you know, fully formed, well evacuated, I feel complete um, bowel motions, that is constipation. I would say anything less than one um, well-formed, you know, complete bowel motion a day is considered constipation or if they are coming out peply, um, then that is definitely a red flag as well. So the the way that colonics can help with uh, kind of addressing that constipation aspect is it helps to clear the backed up stool that can sometimes get stuck to the bowel wall. So in that way, yes. Um, in terms of IBS, again, I think from a, a symptom relief perspective, it can be helpful in some situations alongside treating the underlying root cause. So I don't believe that colonics can treat the root cause of IBS and bloating. In most instances, it's more used as a, a tool in the toolkit. Um, so I hope that answers that question for you. Um, almost there. Uh, what, um, what if low FODMAP diet isn't helping? Okay. So I'm really passionate about sharing on this. There's a couple of things. So a low FODMAP diet, in my opinion, should never be used in isolation um, because, and what I mean by in isolation is that if you've got lots of gut issues going on and you go on a low FODMAP diet and you expect it to solve everything, then I don't think that that's the right way to go about it. Because essentially going on a low FODMAP diet is removing fermentable foods from the bacteria that might be overgrown that are causing a lot of that gas or constipation or loose stools um, there for you. So if all we do is take away the fuel source of those bacteria, that means that we're not really fixing the underlying root cause because we haven't necessarily completely gotten rid of them, nor have we been able to grow our beneficial bacteria because when you go on a low FODMAP diet, you don't just starve the bad bacteria, you also starve the good. And sometimes there's a 
a purpose to that and we need to do that for a period of time. But if you're going to have a healthy gut in the long term, then you actually need to be consuming most of the time some fermentable foods to allow the bacteria to grow or at the very least having fermentable supplements in there. So if it's not working, the first question I'd ask is, are you doing it in isolation, as in are you doing it without doing any supplements, any prebiotics, probiotics, um, antimicrobials if that's required for your specific case, vagus nerve activation, managing your stress, etc.? That would be my first question. My second question would be is how long have you been doing it for? My third question would be um, have you had any gut testing done? Because there are instances where a strict low FODMAP diet is not actually going to be the solution to your gut issues. So a prime example of that is if you've got an overgrowth of sulfur bacteria that we talked about earlier in the podcast episode. In that instance, it's not the high FODMAP foods that are necessarily causing all the issues, it's the high sulfur foods. So you're better off having a low to moderate sulfur diet and not worrying too much about the FODMAPs than you are the flip side, if that makes sense. Um, Okay, second last question. Is nutrition best to start with when it comes to healing the gut? Hmm, that's a really good question. I guess... For me, I think that it's really hard to heal the gut with just one thing. So I believe that nutrition is a massive component, but then I also think that stress management and sleep are massive components when it comes to healing the gut. And then on top of that, I do think that supplements are super important as well. So I I think, you know, I guess I'm going to just – feel into this and say that the question is more around should I start with fixing up my diet or should I start with buying gut supplements my advice would be start with nutrition Um, but I don't believe that in most cases where people have quite significant gut issues that aren't just fixed through eating better than doing things that involve having some kind of supplementation for a period of time activating your vagus nerve, perhaps looking after your sleep and your stress management, getting adequate movement, they're all going to be necessary in order to get you to where you need to get to. Alrighty, it is the last question and the last question is, are there general recommended supplements for optimizing gut health? And my underwhelming answer to this is no, because gut issues vary quite greatly. Um, Although there is a huge overlap in often what can work nutritionally from a long-term perspective, when it comes to fixing gut issues, there aren't general recommended supplements because it really depends what's going on. And that's where being in the hands of an experienced gut practitioner and or investing in some testing if that is necessary can be absolute game changers in getting you back on track as quickly as possible. So that's really what I would do is I would save 
the sup like the money that you would spend on supplements if you just walk into a health food shop or into a pharmacy and say my gut's uncomfortable can I have something because most of the time they're going to hand you a broad spectrum probiotic which is not useful um, in most cases or they might hand you like a gut healing powder which sometimes can actually make a lot of people worse if they've got a lot of gut stuff going on. I really think you're better off saving your money, investing it into working with someone who knows exactly what they're doing because someone who has experience with working with gut conditions will save you time and money in the long run. So I hope that helps. Stay tuned for part two because there are still another 10 or so questions that I want to answer for you. And if any of those questions have brought up more questions, then feel free to shoot me a DM over on Instagram or send an email to support at nataliekdouglas.com and I'll make sure that I add your question to the gut Q&A. And I look forward to seeing many of you on the Gut Masterclass on Wednesday the 20th of January at 10am Australian Eastern Daylight Time.